Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 26, 2015, and this is episode 1543 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got Matt Powers on the line today. He is a teacher at a charter school, and he's here to talk about the education system in general and using permaculture to teach our youth. And by youth, he means kids that are pre-college and how we can use both you know, practical, everyday permaculture in education and how we can use permaculture systems and edge thinking as an overall educational model. We'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is ReadyMadeResources.com. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. Ready-Made Resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says. You'll find all of those resources ready to go. Great pricing, great service from a company you know you can trust because they've been with us for a very long time. Six-plus years now, Ready-Made Resources has been part of the Survival Podcast team. They have everything, and I mean everything, for your prepping needs from the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. Check them out today at ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Hey, you want to be tactical? Then you got to get over to Sawtooth Sawtooth Tactical. Tactical, tactical. They really do have everything to be tactical over there, from Magpul magazines to Maxpedition bags and everything in between. You'll find it at Sawtack. Veteran-owned and veteran-operated, nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. That's why it's called Sawtooth Tactical. When you deal with a vet, you know you're going to get things done right because, well, they're procedural people. Check them out today at Sawtack.com. Remember, ready-made resources, Sawtooth Tactical, many of our other sponsors all do offer discounts and special programs. For members of our Survival Podcast, Members Support Brigade, check the benefits section of the MSB before doing business with any of our sponsors or buying anything in general because there's about 30 other companies back there that give you guys discounts. If you're not a member yet, consider becoming one. And on top of all those great discounts, you get content available nowhere else. You'll help support the show at about 18.3 cents per episode. So if you think when you're done with the show, it's worth 20 cents an episode, do consider joining. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you do qualify for a discount. Just email me, jack at survivalpodcast.com is the email address to use. Put service discount TSPC, Tango Sierra Papa Charlie, in the, the subject line, and I'll get back to you with a discount to save you even more money on an already great product. Before I bring on Matt, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the history segment. Today we have Third Act Problems and What Constitutes an Unalienable Right. We also have the beginning of the Dutch Republic and a foreign-born leadership. And then we have Martin Luther turns against the Jews. I'm going to read... Uh, the Third Act Problems and What Constitutes an Unalienable Right, because it certainly applies to modern day. In previous acts of the English Parliament, King Henry VIII's female children have been removed from the line of succession and rendered as bastards. Now, at the discretion of the king, his parliament has restored Mary and Elizabeth as legitimate heirs to the throne behind his son Edward. Another act makes it a treasonable offense to change this line of succession again. No doubt this was done to protect Edward. 
But when Edward becomes king, he will attempt to come out his half-sisters by naming his successor as Lady Jane Grey. But Mary won't let that stand. Lady Jane will rule for nine days before Mary will have her removed and beheaded. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these history segments together for us, it is the dream on any government to pass a law and make it unchangeable. But the only kind of laws like that are fundamental unalienable rights that come from God. Some of those rights are listed in the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution, and there are some. There was some argument originally that the Bill of Rights should not be added to the Constitution because, as I imagine, the logic went, quote, if we write down these God-given rights, then our descendants will think their rights come from government rather than from their creator. This was where he was deemed as foolish. After all, what kind of knucklehead would think something like that? Yeah. There is some room for confusion, though. Not all of our unalienable rights are listed there. So when someone says that such and such is a right, it is best to figure out rather than reject the claim out of hand as not written in the Constitution. That is a valid argument only if you believe that the rights are granted by government and not by our Creator. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think that Alex sort of has it kind of right there, but the biggest opposition from our founders and from early members of our government to the Bill of Rights wasn't just so much that people would think their rights came from government. It would be, if we put everything in that we can think of as an annual right, and we leave something out, then what? So it's not so much the rights come from government, but even if the people get it, even if the people understand the Bill of Rights is written, the first ten amendments are specifically to indicate that the human being himself has certain rights. That Then somebody would say, ah, But since X is not there, it is not included as one of those listed unalienable rights, so therefore it is not unalienable. Got it? So in the Constitution, nowhere does it say that human beings have a right to water. Maybe it's good, because some people would say that means that no matter where you go, I am required to make sure you have water. That's not what a right to water would mean, but it would mean that you know people have an intrinsic right to access water. To at least access it, to the water that falls on their land, etc., things like that would be. So since that's not listed as a right, it hasn't fallen under legal protections, and we have some states where you don't own the water that falls on the land that you do own, that you pay taxes on. This seems to be a bit incongruent. Well, it is and it isn't, because to appease those that had a legitimate objection, we came up with the ninth and the Tenth Amendments. Those weren't just like already there. They were like to address this concern as such. Let's first read them together, shall we? Instead of knowing one or two amendments, let's look at the two most important ones, really, to all of them, the Ninth and the Tenth. The Ninth might be the most important one in this matter, and it is, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In other words, just because we didn't say it's a right, doesn't mean it's not a right. These are the ones that we looked at and thought, government is already eyeing these things, or the people are already concerned about the government jacking with these things. These are so egregious that we're going to specifically prohibit government from the interference with this list of rights. Got it? And just so we're clear, just so, like we have eight that we want to publish, but just so you get it, We're telling you 
flat out, just because we didn't put it in this list, doesn't mean that it can be used to deny or disparage other rights that we inherently know are retained by the people under their creation as human beings. Okay, So that's the Ninth Amendment. And retained by the people is very important when you then read the Tenth. A lot of people claim to be ignorant uh, of, of constitutional law. They're called politicians and say, well, you don't know exactly what that meant. Well, the Tenth is pretty clear, too. Uh, you're not confused by the comma that's there unless you want to be. Just like some other amendment I'll leave out for today. It is, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, comma, nor prohibited by it to the states, comma, are reserved to the states, respectively, comma, or to the people. Let's just take that apart for a second and have a little civics lesson that they should be teaching kids in school, like we're going to talk about what we should be teaching kids in school today. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, Okay, the United States here means the federal government. Okay, the United States is the government of the states united. Okay, real simple. So unless the Constitution delegates powers to the federal government or prohibits them to the states, they are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. In other words, unless the Constitution specifically empowers the federal government to do something, they don't get to do it. And the states can do it unless it's specifically prohibited to them by the Constitution, or their own Constitution prohibits them from doing it. And all other things are reserved to the people. And the people thereby are charged to see to the sanity of the laws and the... And, and the rights of their own within their respective individual states. That's what that means. It's very simple. If the Constitution doesn't say Washington can do it, Washington can't do it. Which means that 90% of what Washington does today is absolutely 100% based on the Tenth Amendment alone unconstitutional. There's all kinds of shit the government does that is not specifically delegated to it by the Constitution. In other words, if the Constitution doesn't say you should be doing it, you shouldn't be doing it. Now, the states, under our constitutional republic, are given way too much authoritarian power here. Just saying. The state of Texas, the state of Florida, the state of Pennsylvania, the state of California are given almost ungodlike powers here. Because the original Bill of Rights only applied to the federal government, not to the state governments. There's actually nothing in the Constitution that prevents, say, the state of Florida or the state of Texas from, let's say, banning free speech or taking away your right to keep and bear arms. Only the federal government is prohibited from doing anything in the Bill of Rights. Or the states themselves would not have signed on to it. Now, most states then have an individual state constitution that says that. And I know you're saying, oh, Jack, you're wrong because the Supreme Court says, oh, yes, eventually the Supreme Court decided to write into law from the bench that the Bill of Rights applied equally to the states. But that is not how the Constitution was written and or ratified. Now, that's a little scary, but what's even scarier is the people falling down on the job. Respectively, comma, or to the people. You see, in a republic, it is not the Constitution's job to restrain the government. It's our job. We're the ones that have failed. And there's a reason. 
There's a reason. It's easier to fail than succeed when it comes to restraining a state. The smaller and weaker a state is in the beginning, the more its people will prosper, and the more content they will become, the greater the tax base they will represent, and the more wealth they will represent to those in power, and that power will be used to create more power. In other words, the smallest state becomes the largest, most oppressive tyranny in time. History has shown this to happen over and over again. Because unfortunately, the people seem not willing to accept their charge, as guardians of their own republic. My take by Jack Spierko. And with that, I want to uh, welcome our special guest today. Again, his name is Matt Powers. He is a school teacher teaching at a charter school where all the kids have laptops and laptops alone. No books. We're going to talk about that and a lot of other really cool things and how permaculture gets integrated into education in Mr. Bauer's classroom. And with that, I want to say, hey, Matt, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be on a show that I listen to almost every single day. Well, it's cool. I just recently got to meet you at a Permaculture Voices, and uh, didn't get to talk to you a lot. There were so many people out there, it was hard to talk to anybody too much. It was cool to meet you, and now, you know, a week and a half later, I guess it is, to have you on the air. So, uh, again, welcome to the show. But we're on here to talk today about permaculture-based youth education, and by youth you mean pre-college. But before we get into that, because I think it's a fascinating subject, can you tell us, like, you're a teacher now, but you're also involved in permaculture, you're working with charter schools. How did you get into this line of work as a profession and this interest in particular? Were you somebody that, like, in school, like, thought, I'm going to grow up and be a teacher? Did you kind of follow a wonky path? How did you get where you are? I followed a wonky path. I started off hating school hating teachers all except for a handful of ones that were unbelievable individuals. Um, and I ended up being a musician. I was a bass player in touring bands uh, out of New York City and then out of L.A. And I really was interested in eating good food. Um, I actually ended up as a bass player in Rachel Ray's husband's uh, band before they were even married. So John was like my uncle, and I was 18, and he was in his mid-30s as an entertainment lawyer. And then, and they're all Italian. And so we just started touring and eating a ton, and then suddenly Rachel Ray got to be this huge persona, and we started eating more. <laughs> and I actually, I weighed so much that when I moved out west and left that band, I lost 50 pounds. So... I came out of that uh, that awesome touring thing and basically eating my way across America with these awesome Italians. And I... It's 11 o'clock. Oh, that was my uh, computer. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I basically came out of this whole touring thing because my wife got cancer and it kind of shook everything I thought up in such a way that I never could have been the person I was again. And so for me, I became a teacher because I needed to be at home more and be around my kids and help my wife um, handle the, and manage the home. And then I needed to do work, and so I started subbing. And as I became a substitute teacher, I saw the atrocity that is public education specifically in Fresno, uh, California, um, where it's 
um, you know, 60% of the kids are born with asthma. So pollution wise, it's awful. And then there's a huge preponderance for, um, people to be part of gangs because they're economically de- depressed. Um, there's not much going on. So I went and taught at these schools and I was, I got really mad and I was very spoiled as a child and I was given an unbelievable education. My dad kind of paid out the nose. He just kind of took it on the chin and paid for the, uh, like a Cadillac education. I went to NYU. Uh, and then before that, I went to boarding school. Um, and the thing was, is I just did it. I did got good grades because my parents told me to, and I didn't think much of it. I kind of had my head buried in the sand. And I didn't realize how bad, how ludicrously bad it is for other people. And so I kind of felt responsible for these kids in a way, and I started Everywhere I subbed, I would talk to them about the way the world is, the way their classes, and the difference between the two. And very shortly, I started getting known. And one school kind of recognized that I was different and said, hey, you know, you could teach here. And I was like, I could be a teacher at your school. And this was a very special school where all the kids had laptops where there was small class size and the kids were completely different. And it was the first school of its kind I'd ever encountered. It was a charter school. And so they said, if you want to be a teacher, you'd need to do A, you know, A through Z. This is what you need to do. And I kind of didn't want to do it. And I told <laughs> my wife, I said, you know, I, I've never liked, um, school. Um, and I listed all the reasons why I don't like it. And she said, that's why you should be a teacher. And so I listened to my wife. Actually, that's that's the reason where I'm at West, too, and left that band and everything is because, you know, I listen to my wife. We pray about it. And then um, we make these decisions. And every single one of them has been really, really good. And I'm so glad I became a teacher. Uh, before I became, was allowed to teach in the classroom, uh, one of the uh, people who got me into it gave me a book called Dumbing Us Down by John Taylor Gatto. And he said, before you go into a classroom, it's really important to understand the context, the historical context of what schooling is. And he gave it to me and I read it like in two days. And it was like Howard Zinn's A People's History, but for education and probably with a lot less of the, you know, the um, uh, Native American worship involved. So, We have this, so I have this like moment where my life kind of opened up because I was changing and then I became a teacher. And then in the middle of that, I've been trying to figure out how to grow um, clean food for my, for my family, especially because my wife's cancer, she had thyroid cancer. And then immediately after she got melanoma and we had our our firstborn son right in the middle of this. And so I became like uber paranoid. I'm a lot more relaxed now because I have control <laughs> over these things because I do things. I'm active um, in my gardens and uh, we're actively using lots of different kinds of medications um, to, to help my wife stay healthy. But <laughs> I mean, for a while, I was just reading and reading and reading. And, um, what happened was I basically started studying all this stuff in the garden and how to make and verify clean food and really healthy nutrient dense food. And then I discovered permaculture. Then I discovered, uh, Jeff Lawton and it all kind of 
hit a head last last spring summer when I realized there's nothing for kids for, in permaculture. There's stuff for teachers to teach kids, but there's nothing for a kid to pick it up and go, "Hey, this is cool. I'm going to go do this." Very cool, man. Now look, let's kind of talk about before we get into the permaculture stuff. Just the school you're part of is you're part of this charter school, and I mean everybody knows that charter schools are special private schools for people that the Koch brothers steal from. No, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> charter schools are actually a really awesome evolution, and they put a lot more power in the hands of the, the folks that, that run the school. But you mentioned something I've never heard before. You teach at a school that uses only laptops. I'd like to know what that's like. Now, my personal thought is, well, duh, we should be doing this. And of course, people would put out, point out the cost, and I would remind them what a textbook costs. And it, you know, eight of those a year per student. And gee, I, you know, I think the textbook scam is one of the biggest ones out there. So you have a, a classroom where everybody has a laptop. Aren't the kids distracted and playing Doom or whatever? Well, you know, it's funny. Minecraft is what the kids play now, and we actually use that in our math class. So we catch them on games, and it's like, is this math or personal? You know what I mean? <laughs> Seriously, though, how does that all work out? Like okay, so I totally was listening to your podcast about education, and I'm, like, bouncing up and down in my seat trying to, like, not talk to you because you're not going to answer back. Uh, <laughs> so it, all right. So your vision is spot on if we get the kids pure, but the problem is by the time they get to me, their, their, their skills have atrophied. The six year old them is withered. And so they don't have the ability to automatically ask why and how, um, more than once, because in order to really be an investigative mind, discovery learning and to do the what we what we imagine they should be doing which is like oh yeah uh get out of my way i'm gonna go do this because this is what i'm passionate about and this is my vehicle they're not quite there yet I, we've erased a lot of kids abilities to know what they want and like um and so a lot of my job is get re, re getting the kids to rearticulate who they are in such a way that they can access what they want and like outside of the influence of entertainment or indoctrination. And it's actually, it's actually, some kids just take right to it like, uh, like I would have, you know what I mean? I would have just, if, if I was given a month, I actually did this this year. I gave the kids a month and a half of school time in my class to work on an independent project that starts with a heuristic question, a how or why question. And so I had one girl ask why she has night terrors, despite the fact that she's uh, 13, 14. And it kind of opened up a whole can of worms. In class, a bunch of the other girls are like, you're so weird. I will never come over to your house and sleep over again. And she's like, I know. I, don't, I can't help it. And it obviously has been plaguing her entire life. But because she was able to ask these questions... She started doing research and then she's realized that there were sleep centers in our area where she could go and ask a professional. And then she talked to her parents about it and she went and talked to a professional. He gave her a bunch of different, uh, uh, techniques, uh, basically exercises and she went home and did it. And she now has been three months without any sleepwalking or night terrors for the first time in her entire life. 
And that's project-based learning. And that's what our school does. And the, the laptops are like the greatest tool ever because they're all the textbooks we could have ever imagined combined. And they could be so much more if we opened up libraries to be digitized. We haven't done that. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's, I guess, you know, Google Books is trying sort of kind of to do that. You have intellectual property issues and all. But I see that problem slowly over time fixing itself. Like we have this revenue model right now that for people to be willing to go, I mean, if you've ever written a book, and I, I know you're working on stuff like that, it's it's difficult. It takes time, and there has to be some sort of reward at the end of the tunnel for it, especially if you have like mortgages to pay and things like that. So I think it's a matter of things evolving to the point where people figure out, hey, there's still a way people can earn a living participating in a system like this. It's a lot like music. You remember back in the 90s when people started downloading music, the, the artists are going to be poor, the record companies are going to go out of business, whatever. And it's probably the case now the music industry is making more money than any time in history. And I just think with books, we're slowly adapting to a monetization model that will make that work. I, I agree with that. And I think the, 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 the real issue is that we keep thinking that digital is somehow different from uh, text when it comes to schools. And it's not. I talked to Lawrence Lessig about this um, early on when I started working here because it's if we have these machines that can rip DVDs and we're truly our fair share, then we should be able to cut those DVDs up and remix everything. Just as we should be able to take all the digital downloads we want and make a school library that's open and free for the children here and the teachers to use in class. I don't see any difference how that's not fair share. Uh, you know what I mean? I don't see any difference from that being fair share. And you know, library. library. Because we, and I think that's about paying the content producer for their content. Mm -hmm. Initially. That, and the way that you do, so when I buy, uh, software for my computer costs me $900. If I buy that for a thousand employees, I do not pay $900 times a thousand. I get a deal for multiple license fees. And it should be that the content producers could be compensated in a way that would say, this is for use for our students. And, you know, they have X amount of seats and not everybody's going to read your stuff, please. Right. And so I think there's ways to do that. I think we're, we're on the right track there. But with all of this electronics, do the kids really pay attention when you're teaching, let's say, or does it lessen your need to teach? I mean, you told the story of this one girl that really got a lot out of this project, but I got the feeling maybe not everybody does. No, you're absolutely right. And that's the thing is there, the, Boys, especially, are atrophied. They've been forced to sit still, and we—it's basically a crime we've been perpetrated against. You know, young young boys, especially young girls too, but they're better at sitting and and doing this kind of stuff. We have this thing where we force them to do our will for so many years, and we expect them the minute we free them to joyfully go along with what we're asking them to do, but not forcing them. Of course, they're going to kick back and fight. Um, the key is it raises the bar. So you need to, as a, as a teacher, one needs to teach at a higher level and have your lessons be attractive enough that the kids want to learn. Because if we're going to uh, take this to uh, where it's really going is a privatized level, kids are going to vote for me to be a teacher. And at the school, actually, um, the kids voted on me to be a teacher there was a, a council of students, teachers, and parents that uh, interviewed me 
and they voted that I should be a teacher. And the students, so it's like student government, except the students say actually means something. Uh huh. And we do surveys every quarter on the teachers, and then the teachers get uh, get the feedback. And so we read through it, and like we take it pretty seriously because our bosses are like, "Hey, why is this a student saying that they're not being challenged?" I mean, can you do this or that or this? You know, and it's so easy with the laptops to create a challenging aspect or if they're having a really hard time, create an aspect that makes it scaffolding for them. Yeah, and I think there's like some kind of weird vibe that comes out of teachers when you talk about things like student reviews and stuff like that of their performance because they say, well, if they don't like me, they'll 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 slander me or whatever. I I don't think so. I mean, I think back to when I was in high school, and I have plenty of teachers that I thought were very apathetic, but there were those few, like you mentioned, that were just outstanding, and some of them were very tough. But I never knew that any of the students in their class, whether they liked them or not, ever really said anything negative about them just because they were their class was hard to pass or something like that. Like even the, the students who would be a little bit disgruntled still overall had a positive impression of a teacher that was actually a good teacher, even if they were very difficult to get through their class or whatever. Where the, te- the, 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 the teachers that students seem to have a lack of respect for were accurately, at this point now I could figure it out, but at the time I really didn't understand it, was the, the teachers didn't respect the students. If you're apathetic towards your job, well, then you're apathetic toward your student, which means you don't have respect for your student. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, kids can read all this. And that's that, that's the funny thing that teachers like don't get. These teachers that, you know, hate their jobs and, and hate, really boils down to them not liking kids. Um, the kids know. I mean, we all we all knew back then and we still know we can still see it. There's no difference. Um I think that the future is us basically turning schools into libraries that are awesome libraries with guides instead of teachers um, that facilitate learning uh, and activities and basically kids teaching themselves rather than this whole top-down authoritarian model we have. The real issue is that we are applying a factory model and we're using a bureaucratic machination model um, from the British Empire in a modern day setting where, I mean, it's Google, it's Facebook, it's these things that individuals are innovating um, that are really guiding things now. I mean, do you feel the same way I do then that like you, you, you look at this and you go, why in the hell did, you know, metaphorically speaking, do we have children learning to do math on an abacus? Or, or English in the way we do it because they're both abstract. And when yeah. you give, when you create an abstraction, you lower the value of it. And so we have all these kids who are like, wow, this is stupid. I have no connection to these grammar exercises, this vocab exercise, this dumb story about this family in the South and about how they feel this way about something that I've never really learned about in history class because I didn't pay attention to that class either. And so these kids learn in a vacuum. And then they become a vacuum and then the, the apathy sets in. We need to connect things to their lives and give kids the ability to do stuff that's meaningful that actually affects their family and their day-to-day lives like permaculture. Yeah. I mean, because I look at it like the way the school is built right now, there's really about most high schools have kind of four 
disciplines, I guess. There's like a, a purely academic path. There's one that's really college preparatory. There's one that's kind of business oriented and there's one that's kind of a vocational technical. And it's like you're making cockret, co uh, sprockets and cogs and transistors and transformers. And those are the only four things that's being made in this factory. And then you send those parts out into a place where they have to function in five million different types of technology, some of which don't use any of those four things. And because we're doing that, the student, by the time, especially I think you're at the high school level, they get to there, they're starting to work that out. Like this is, a lot of this is bullshit. I'm never going to use this ever. And then you wonder why they're apathetic. They're pissed. I would, I mean, I was as a young man. I was very upset about this. And the more I worked it out, the more angry and more apathetic I became. Me too. So wow. how do you see something like, are you, are you teaching permaculture to high school students right now? And how does that work? Well, um, I fit it into my English class right now. And then I teach it during lunches. Kids come and stay with me every lunch. Um, and then no, I, no, no, that doesn't happen. Kids don't come to you voluntarily for extra work. That's not possible. <laughs> they do when they want to make money. <laughs> um, yeah, and they do when they want to. I mean, we're in an area where the fires were like, everyone's talking about how the rim fire is scary. And so, well, that's Mariposa. And then you come around to our side, Oakhurst. Um, it's all right here. North Fork's on the other side of us. We are in the middle of where all those fires were last year. And everyone's freaked out because they know there's less water and it's supposed to be hotter this year. So everyone's kind of at the point now where they're ready to listen to anyone who has a concrete action that will preserve their property or preserve water or make it so that they can grow food. And I, I mean, everyone in the valley right now, it seems like we're in a cusp moment. PBS, I mean, we're talking to them about doing a mini series on permaculture for the valley. I mean, it covers Bakersfield, Tulare. I mean, it's going to be intense if we get if that happens. And they need it, that's for sure. So, can you talk about how you integrate how do you integrate permaculture in English? Okay, so we're project based, so um I really like um presentations because they require you to stand and deliver. I really like research because it it puts the um learning into your lap. And then I love collaboration because it causes people from different levels to interact and have to work together. And so, I mean, we start off the year with um, how do you fix Detroit? And the kids are like, wait, what's wrong with Detroit? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> let's look at some pictures. And then it looks like, you know, Detroit's been bombed. And the kids are all freaked out. We watch a couple little documentaries and then they're off and running and they're just like, Look at this. They're trying this. They're trying that. And they're going off and just inhaling it. And then uh, we start talking about solutions and problem solving. And I I try to gear everything around um, entrepreneurism because I truly believe that's the future, especially in America, because all these jobs and all these corporations and stuff aren't sustainable. And regardless of whether you feel they're bad or good, they just won't last. Um, they're not strong economic models. So we need to prepare for a stronger econ economy. And in order to do that, I really think that we need to be having kids creating businesses. We need to be having kids um, 
researching edu- uh, career and educational paths and then running the numbers. Because I had a girl this year go, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I said, okay, cool. Let's do that as your career path. And you present it and tell us all about that. So everyone else will learn what it is, what it will take to be a lawyer. Her presentation said, why I will never be a lawyer. I love that. And I she her entire people life, down that pathway because it was a good job or whatever. Right. She didn't realize how, how long she would be in debt. She didn't realize how tightly her lifestyle would be monitored by her debt for how many years. And she was like, I don't want to start my life when I'm 30. <laughs> and it's true. It's like, well, th- that's the sacrifice you make if you want to be a lawyer. And she was like, I'm not interested in that. That's not me. <laughs> It, it, I mean, that's the kind of thing we need to have these kids doing. I, you, you're making me think of a, a buddy of mine, uh, was engaged to a gal. They ended up not being married eventually. This was probably a good thing, but she went to school to be an architect and she went through, you know, the, the whole curriculum to do that. It's very difficult to get through. She got out of it. She had to do then two years of basically like a internship type thing before they'll let you actually design a building. And she ended up with a job designing closets and she wanted nothing to do with architecture. Well, she had gone into architecture because her dad was an architect and her uncle was an architect and they made good money. And I, I guarantee you that if she had had someone that challenged her to the same type of analysis in like 10th grade, probably wouldn't have taken all of that money, all of that time and all of that effort to realize this isn't what I want to do. Yeah. And I don't think you need an architectural degree to design closets. I mean, somebody correct me on that if I'm wrong. but <laughs> You got that right. I don't even know if it would be helpful, honestly. It might be hindrance. Right. And so I usually start off the class on this tip with um, my own example. My father paid for my college education at NYU. Now, if I was going to become a school teacher with an NYU degree, I always ask the kids, do you think that would be wise? Do you think I fiscally can handle being a teacher with that kind of debt? And the kids are like, I don't know, how much is it to go to NYU? Fifty-five, <laughs> without you know housing and food. That's annually, by the way, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, so let's say it's two hundred thousand dollars. Because they're like, what? And I'm like, yes, it is. And they're like, just let's just say that's what your debt is. How is making thirty-two grand after taxes as a third-year teacher ever going to work that math out? And the kids are like, oh, but you get 30 grand. And I was like, let's go over living expenses <laughs> and insurance and taxes. And- oh, yeah. Yeah. And it blows their minds. And they have. And, and at the end of the day, we have kids going home and bringing all the data. And then I have parents calling me and being like, this is great. I had no idea that my son could do this. Yeah. And. <sighs> See, this is what I was saying earlier this year, that when we see these kids with all the student loan debt, and we have people coming out and saying no one made them take on this debt, yes, we did. We convinced them that it was a good idea without, like, they don't know what they're doing to themselves. When you're 17, 18 years old, and you're a good kid with quotes around it, you trust your parents, you trust your teachers, you trust your advisors. No one puts them through that process so they can see, This is the cost. This is the reward. This is how long it'll take me to get where I'm going if everything works out. Best case, worst case scenarios. That type of critical thinking 
is actually excluded from our modern education system. Oh, yeah. I mean, we raise them from a very young age to say, I'm going to go to college in third and fourth grade. We start beating that into their heads. They do not have a choice if they're if they've been trained by school and the Pavlovs, you know, has gone in. They're going to do what we say. Well, you got to look at it this way. Why do you think AT&T spends about $90 million a year on advertising if what you're told doesn't have an effect on you? <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, and that's just through the TV set. That's not through a trusted authority figure. Right. And, yeah, people don't trust the TV, and they're sp still spending that much money on it. Yeah. 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 And, of course, they pay a lot of money to get a trusted authority figure to tell you to do something. So that tells you that function works. So, like, if I wanted to... You know, if I want to sell you gold, I might get G. Gordon Liddy to tell you to buy gold or whatever. Why? Because the trust factor is is then transferred over with the message. Well, who does a kid trust more, again, good quitting kid in quotes or whatever, than his parents and his teachers? Yeah, who is there to trust, really? And and it's kind of – that kind of hits the nail on the head. And, and it's a good thing and a bad thing, but this generation has no idea who to trust. And that could be a good thing because that means that when they decide who to trust, they use discernment. But the other thing is I see kids who know better kind of signing their life away, not going through leadership training and just getting shipped around in the military. And it's like, dude, you need to pick up and you need to figure out where you want to go because otherwise you're just going to be wandering around and not gathering skills through this process. Um, especially, uh, I always say this, if you want to be in the military, pick your path, get leadership training, go to officer school and come out of it with some real experience. And I feel like whether it's the military or retail, there's a lot of people with no plan and they're just going out there and they're not gathering skills and they're not, they're not, they're not investing in themselves. Yeah, I agree. I think it doesn't matter if it's military or any job. I absolutely. I, I don't remember where I read this, but I remember one time in one of you know as, as I was doing self learning on business as I was coming mm -hmm. up to business, reading never take a job for the paycheck, take it for what you'll learn. And that's the problem is that all these kids are literally just going, where can I go to to feed? And there's no like, how am I going to get higher up on this hill? How am I going to climb this mountain? So it's very clear talking to you that teaching is now a passion. And yeah. I think, based on what you've said, that finding permaculture helped make that the case. So how exactly did you find your way into permaculture? What kind of impact has it had on you as a teacher? All right. So I think it basically made it so that I had an answer to all the questions and problems that the kids had that I could say. Because let's say um, – I mean, there's there's a lot of answers to kids' questions in schools that you can't say. You could provide a religious answer. You could provide a spiritual answer. You could provide a political answer. But man, oh man, you better not because you don't, you know, you're not going to stay in that job long. But you can provide a permaculture answer in school because it gives a context with hope that's based upon science, which is pretty crazy that we can do that, but it works. So a kid's like. Um, I'm, my, my dad's ranch is shutting down. Um, I have all these problems where the water and I could go, 
oh, those state legislators have been doing this or L.A. is stealing your water, those, you know, or PG&E. And I could go political and, man, that's going to set some people off because, hey, aren't those people over there, they eat by PG&E. And those people over there, their are families in, in L.A. And, and works for the county. And then, so everyone's interconnected. You can't really, like, point fingers and get away from it. So with the way permaculture works is it's like, all right, I want you to take responsibility for yourself. And here are some proven methods that allow you to do that. And suddenly it's like, wait, you can just do that? And it's like, yeah, you can just do that. You can grow your own food. You can make chickens make more chickens. You can grow mushrooms and spend $60 and make $6,000 over the next two years. You can better manage the water that you still have. Absolutely. And so suddenly it gives them hope. In an actionable way, instead of a judgmental way. And I think that's the real problem with all the solutions we kind of have from our society. And the reason they're so controversial is they're all judgments. So it's like, all right, well, what's the political solution? Well, those guys are evil and we're going to punish them. And it's like, ooh, well, that's going to get ugly. I need to just fix this problem I don't need to get bogged down in that. And my mom was a politician. And so I kind of have seen the ugly side of politics growing up a lot. And it didn't it didn't go anywhere. Like the guy, you know, there's one campaign my mom went through and the guy just slung as much, much mud as he could, made stuff up. And he didn't win. But it really like destroyed a lot of people's goodwill and a lot, it, it eroded the town's goodwill. Um, and I, I just, I just think that we, we need to get past that. Yeah, I, I agree. I want to, I want to go into the process based learning, but before we do, I want to back up a second because I think you kind of tripped on something really interesting there that I, I, I think people don't get. So in a lot of states now, there is a great deal of control of the state educational curriculum. Oh, yeah. Coming from the state level. Now, you said something there that one of your students might come to you with a problem like, my father's in danger of losing his ranch due to this drought. Mm-hmm. Okay. The total number of times I heard that while I was in school is zero. And I have a sneaking suspicion, even though California is in the middle of a drought, the total number of times that a teacher will hear that in a Los Angeles County school or specifically Los Angeles City school is going to be exactly zero. The concerns and the individual life experiences of the students in different schools is strikingly different. Mm-hmm. How is it? ever going to be possible to have that much central authority and serve the customer who in the end is the student and the parent. Yeah. You know, um, common core has, has removed outlining from all writing standards K through 12. (laughs) You know, I base my business on outlines. Yeah. My entire business every day is based on me getting up, drawing out an outline and then doing a presentation. Well, that's how we organize thought. Even when we don't do it on paper, that's how we do it in our heads. Sure. So we take away a critical skill that in my individual case has enabled a successful entrepreneurial-based business. 
and we take that out of schools and we give the teacher no ability to put it back in. That's another example of that central authority believing that it knows best for all, all comers. Because we have to have standardized testing. We have to have the same metrics for everybody is the mentality. And I think that, you know, I'm fond of saying you think you're helping, but you're not. I think there's a lot of people in that system. That's really what it comes down to. They don't, they're products of that same system. They don't know any better. They think that is actually a good thing. They're not doing it because they're like a bunch of evil pricks sitting around going, how do we mess up the next generation of kids? They believe everybody needs to learn math the same way, writing the same way, reading the same way, and be tested to the same standard. But the reality is you can go into a job at a company and talk to 10 engineers who do basically the same job, and they're all decidedly different in how they get that exact same job done, let alone how much different does the engineer get his job done from the architect versus the the janitor. And, I mean, nobody wants to be the janitor, but somebody's going to do that job, and actually there's probably some janitors that like their job. Work nights, nobody bothers them, whatever. So how could we ever expect that we would apply this universal curriculum to 300 million people who are going to do 100 million different things. Yeah, it's very concerning. Um, I mean, the reality that uh, that I see is that they just don't understand the way people actually work. And they don't understand what assessment actually is and how to actually test it. Because if you look at what an assessment is, it's a snapshot of what ability is. And what, what ability is or certain skill sets or demonstrating certain, um, levels of proficiency of the skill set. But when we do standardized testing, there are multiple choice and we teach kids how to be test smart. Test smart is really a fancy way of saying how to conceal your ignorance. Yeah. And so we're teaching kids how to hide their inabilities instead of trying to expose and showcase their abilities and strengths. And being good at multiple choice means that you're really good at determining two absolutely are wrong and then picking yeah. one of the two other ones that are left behind. That's actually the default. That's the default we teach it. And, and of course you do. Why wouldn't you? It works. And the funny thing is we really rely upon in schools, kids already knowing. And so <laughs> half of the things that we teach kids already know. And the thing is, we've been just rehashing it over and over again. And I totally believe that by rehashing it, we are destroying it. So in other words, we're going to talk about simile in fourth grade all the way through 12th grade over and over again. So by the time you're an adult, that word has no meaning. And in fact, it's a label on something that's so simple that four and five-year-olds get it. Um I mean, almost all the literary devices that we learn in English class are included in the Disney songs that we all sing as little babies and toddlers. And we just rehash labels on them and shuffle them around in our heads until they're meaningless. And so it's really hard for me to even like talk to people that believe Common Core is going to help anything. Um, if they've actually read it. If they've not read it, I can easily explain to them that what we talk about is Common Core, where we are combining ideas and where it's cross-curricular and it's multiple disciplines and arrive at problems in different ways. That all sounds good. But the reality is they are lobotomizing critical thinking 
by removing synthesis, application, and critical thinking from the way we teach. Yeah, I when I think about that, it, it's one of those things I try not to think about too much because it it absolutely infuriates me. I mean, you know, my whole belief is that we need to be creating hundreds of different options to where these terrible options just cease being used. People just go, well, I'm, if, as long as there's a better option, I'm not going to do that. Um, but I, I kind of want to go into process-based learning now. So one of the things I love about permaculture and where I can see it being so valuable to a teacher is let's say we never even talked about the agricultural components. The troubleshooting methodology, the analysis, edge interactions, this type of thinking – so that if any problem were to come up or any project would come up for a student, to be able to turn and take that approach with them instead of saying, this is what you need to know, saying to them, okay, well, let's see, first, you know, let's, let's answer some questions. How does this affect you? How does this apply to you? And if, if the, if, if the child comes up with the honest answer of it doesn't, maybe they need a new subject to work on. Yeah, I do that in my class. <laughs> you know, and then, but the next thing is if it does, then they can start using the same types of, methodology that we use to do a permaculture design. In other words, if someone comes to me and says, I want to grow a bunch of stuff on my property, what should I plant? Hold on. Stop. Stop. Let's start out with where you live. What's your climate like? How many inches of rainfall do you get a year? When do you get that rain? What is your climate extremes? Let's do an energy audit of your property. Let's look do a sector analysis. Let's, let's, let's figure out exactly what you're working with. Then let's figure out what works in that environment, and then let's fine tune that to your, fine tune that to your desires. There is no problem I can think of in the world that can't be analyzed that way. Absolutely, you, you might change the terms, right? But you're going to do the same thing. Yeah, and it's system design. It's basically taking things um, that you want. Uh, you have a specific goal in mind, and then you create a system, and then you overlap um, overlap. Uh, the different functions in a way that uh, all the inputs and outputs are taken care of. You know, it's funny is that my brother and my dad are, well, one of my brothers and my dad um, are economics guys and uh, they've been business forever. One's a financial advisor and I've never been able to talk to them about really anything in t business wise until I took my permaculture design course. And then suddenly I can speak their language. That's, and it's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> well, it, it is because all of a sudden, like, if if you understand process thinking, then there might be a word or two you don't know the definition of. Mm -hmm. But once you identify the pattern that is the process, then the whole thing becomes self-evident. And this is why I do a lot of shows about permaculture And some out of the very high level thinking and the people that are like, I don't care about that because I don't want to grow stuff in my backyard. I'm like, I don't think you understand. Um, the, the, like when people ask all the time, how do you immediately look at a news story and just go bullshit? Well, because the pattern's there. Oh yeah. The pattern that I've recognized a hundred times in the last 10 years has reappeared again. At that point, I'm already at 99%. That this is BS, right? So then all I have to do is look for one or two corroborating things and go, okay, I don't need to pay attention to this. This is, this is crap. Or you look at something and go, that pattern looks different. This requires my investigation. The question, the answer to the question, does this affect me is yes. Does it affect the things I care about? Yes. Do I have the ability to influence it? Yes. You're, you're engaged in this process analysis 
24 hours a day, seven days a week with zero effort because human beings recognize patterns. If I show you a picture of a multi-gang light switch with 10 light switches on it, and all the lights are on or all the lights are off, but one switch is down because it's reversed, it bugs you, right? You know, mm. that's not, I don't like that. And if I show it like one up, one down, one up, one down, one up, one down, two up, one down, you, you, you intrinsically want to fix, like, the mind sees that pattern. That's human's work. And if we actually taught children to see these patterns, we would actually be teaching them because they'd be learning to learn. The problem would be, I think, in our current system, there's not a lot of bureaucrats to be up for that because they'd recognize the pattern they're in. Oh, yeah. And, 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 you know, that's why traditional cultures always had artwork that was tied into the culture that was pattern-based. And usually it was it, the more sophisticated the culture was, the more sophisticated their patterns were. Do you think, you mentioned earlier that there's so much of the stuff we, were, we, we assume children learn. I remember being in seventh grade going, we learned this two years ago. Why are we doing this again? And, and, and looking at students next to me that didn't get it going, how do you not remember this? This is, I saw this on Mr. Rizzer's world or whatever. Why are you, this is from Mr. Rogers. What, I mean, how do you not understand this? And the reason that there's this propensity to constantly regurgitate this stuff and remix it and repackage it, do you think it has anything to do with the artificial constraint of duration? Right? Like, you have to be 180 days a year, 12 years of school, like, this schedule that has to be kept in order to justify the extortion of tax dollars. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's mind-numbing. It makes the kids numb out because they realize that they have no power in this situation. And so it's like the rabbit that goes still in your arms because it's trying to pretend to be dead. Our kid, we're literally training our kids to freeze mentally. And so we're like, perform now. You're 18, perform. And they're like mentally frozen. And then they go hide in alcohol or they go hide in, you know, uh, partying at a, at a frat, you know, or they hide in academia and good grades, good grades and got to climb the ladder. And in the end of the day, they're not human. They're not, they haven't fully expressed their freedom. And so they're not fully human. And that's what I kind of, what happened to me through permaculture was I was able to feel the weight of my abilities and I was able to feel empowered by myself without feeling like I needed an expert intermediary to refer to or to, to turn to for help. And so, and not only that, it's like something I can teach everyone. I can teach all the 12 year olds in the world how to do exactly all the things that I've done and that I'm thinking that are making me feel this way. And I don't need to do it for 12 years. I can do it in a month and then they can go off and teach themselves and experience the world and learn the way that we always have through experience and dialectics. In a way, it's like mathematics, right? So if we teach mathematics properly, we teach basic addition, multiplication, subtraction, etc. Some basic rules about order and maybe a clever an acronym like my dear Aunt Sally here and there. And if we teach that properly, we don't need to spend an undue amount of time on it. Because until we get into higher mathematics, the basic mathematics necessary to calculate anything from how much water catchment's going to flood a field to how much change I should get when I buy a hot dog are really, really simple. And if we teach that right, then we've actually taught because then the student can take that and they don't have to go, well, I've seen this problem before. All they have to do is figure out the numbers involved and there's a formula there that's built into the pattern that says, this is how I know how much money I get back. 
right? I don't have to have a hundred word problems phrased different ways so that every time I come into a situation in life, I've had that exact word problem. I just understand numbers and pattern. And if we teach the critical analysis thinking, it's like doing that instead of just for math, for everything. Whenever I have a pattern, what is the first thing I do? A problem. First thing I do or a question, what is the first thing I do? I analyze it. I analyze everything that's known about it, everything that's similar to it, everything that interacts with it. I define the edges and figure out where the interactions are. And then I begin to dissect that. It, it, it seems so simplistic in that it works so well, it, it's almost unconscionable that we're not teaching it right now to our children. And I think the problem in the mind of these uh, these educational like uh, academics is that they can't measure what's internal to the kid. Mm. So when we set this up, we essentially are asking the kid to do it all, you know, internally in their heads. And then the growth really is happening there and it's not as quantifiable. And so because it's not quantifiable, they discount it. Yeah. And how do you tax it? How do you promote somebody to principal or administrator on it? How do you create an authoritarian hierarchy yeah. based around it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's making me think of uh, Toby Hemingway's work with liberation permaculture. Since you can't quantify it, you can't tax it. Since you can't tax it, you can't control it. Therefore, you don't want it. Therefore, I do. Absolutely. Right? So you've written some books, right? Or you're you're writing a book. I yeah. Well, I wrote I wrote the permaculture student, which is a spring supplement to a middle school science classes. That is also totally perfect for homeschoolers, for families, or even adult learners that are looking for a simple and clear academic reference on permaculture with recipes, with activities. And I have a workbook that's really a guided framework that allows you to enter things like your sun aspect, what mulch crops work well in your area, um, what the different pHs are for the, the you know to have different sites on your property, and I've actually got that set up so that it's uh, sold as a PDF too, so you can print multiple copies off and redo it or have multiple children work on it. So the idea is that I'm trying to create resources so that we have permaculture education that starts. Um, I'm actually I'll, I'll start here. Sixth through twelfth grade volumes one, two, and three of the permaculture student will lead and connect students to the college programs. And there's about over 40 of them in America right now. Um, and what will happen is it will lift those programs and allow those programs to be much more sophisticated, and we're going to be able to give them experienced permies by then. And I'm working on stuff for K through 5, but it's not manual-based. It's not designed so that the kid can take the manual and go run with it. Mm. Those I'm doing stories for K through 5. Because um, it's my belief that children, when they're really young, learn through stories and experience. And there's already doing the gardens and all the schools, and I can't remotely really help with that because there's plenty of books out there on how to do a school garden and teach sure. with it, and that are wonderful. Um, but books about like books that kids can dream on. Um, I'm doing a book right now with a Disney animator who took Jeff Lawton's uh, permaculture class with me. And we're writing about how two brothers get lost in the Moroccan desert and stumble upon a food forest that Jeff actually found in the 70s. 
and it's a three thousand year old food forest, and they are it, it saves their lives. They're lost after a sandstorm, and their parents find them. They discover Barbary lions there, and it's this unbelievable thing because it's man made. They've never seen anything like it. And so those kind of stories of discovery and adventure that everyone loves as a child, I want to tie in permaculture because unless we have children dreaming and having their hearts and passions tied into permaculture, it's never going to go beyond um, the garden. And it really has to go beyond the garden like you were talking about. The thing that people don't get is they're like, oh, no, no, I'm not interested in farming or gardening. And it's like, no, no, no. We're talking about <laughs> systems design. Yeah. We're talking about how to run a business profit profitably and ethically. Yeah. And how to analyze all the interactions that come into play with whatever you're working with, working on or developing. Absolutely. That's like it, 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 it seems to be the missing thing that prevents people from being successful. I actually would have to say that. People have asked me, you know, how have you been successful in business over the years? And it's because I was doing this just in a disorganized way, and I didn't know that's what I was doing. Yeah, and, and you know, that's what it feels like when you learn permaculture. Yeah. It feels like everything you were trying to do just got put in order so you can run. And so you, I think it's also like even if you had like a natural talent, like some people pick up a flute and they just play it, right? So some people can just walk into a business, see all the problems, start fixing it. And know exactly what to do. And know what to do. Walk, you can go as a consultant. You walk into business after business after business and say, here are the things to do. But you don't have the words and the language with which to explain to somebody who doesn't know how this is how you do this. So a music teacher who could never play a flute as, as good as this person that just picks it up and plays this amazing music like they were born to do it would be a better person to teach you how to play a flute. Because the person that's just natural at it can't even understand why you can't do it. And that's a lot of things in business, a lot of things in detecting things like this is BS, came from the standpoint of I just see it. But I don't know how to explain it to you, and I don't get. But then when you learn how to do it methodically, then you realize why the other person, you, you see what they don't see. And then you have a language and a word system and a process to push them into where they can find it for themselves. And I think there's a lot of people out there that have this natural talent for things that would love to teach it or be mentors in it, but they can't because they don't know how to transcend the gap from what's natural to what's learned. And that's a big part of what this does. Yeah. So to that end, the next volumes are high school volumes, and I'm teaming up with guys from uh, guys and gals from PV2 and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be designing small-scale versions of some of the innovations that are, like, just breaking ground. Like the gasifier, Troy Martz. Troy wants to do a 50-watt camping gasifier that a high school senior or junior can make in school and take home. Hmm. A lot better than the spice rack I built. Right, right. <laughs> and we're outside Yosemite. You know what I mean? So that is as appropriate as appropriate can be. And then I'm talking to Peter McCoy of Radical Mycology about how to make a uh, little, uh, little oyster mushroom digestion of paper and cardboard such that every kid can take a chunk home and then they can start digesting the paper in their homes. 
and then and then it, I, in my mind I'm seeing this spread out and then the my mycelium uh, or the the fungi literally like spreading out through the county and eating up the county paper and waste and cardboard and just ending that output from our county. Yeah, instead of turning the paper back into another book, how about we turn it into food? Yeah. And so there's this I'm, I'm gathering these people. I'm trying, I'm going to talk to Art Ludwig about, uh, soon about, uh, doing gray water, small gray water, um, examples or small products that people can do on their homes. Um, that'll be legal that everyone in the state of California is allowed to do so that we can start doing these things and start having the parents go, wow, this is really valuable. What would it cost to do this to our sink? Or our washing machine. What would it cost to have that uh, have mushrooms growing in the garden this year? And you know, once we start asking those questions, we've won because we know the answer to those questions rule. They're the best answers. They're the things that get us up in the morning that get us excited. In sales, we call them buying questions. Yeah. Right. But instead of buying a product, now you're buying an idea. So instead of forcing you, because I think there's a tremendous number of people out there that like the environmental thing has been so tainted and mm -hmm. it's been made so political and it's been made so cloudy. And I think no matter what you think about global warming, the, the, the debate about it at the political level has destroyed the ability of rational people to have a rational conversation about the environmental problems that they actually all agree are problems it's because – One side believes only one thing's important, and the other side thinks that anything that's a problem now means that one thing. And it makes no freaking sense at all because we can all look at a drought-stricken landscape and go, well, that, that, that's not good, right? We can all look at a cesspool of, of coal slush and go, that, that we need to do, that's, that, that's not good. We can all look at landfills and go, well, this, this, this can't go on forever. But that discussion, That wasn't that out of the realm of, uh, of reality in the 1970s. It's just not happening anymore. And if you can get people actually taking the, the, the solutions and implementing them, then they're gonna, they're gonna end up back into that actual conversation on their own. Yeah. I tend to, in our area, there's a lot, a lot of what you're talking about. And, um, part of it is because the debate got out of hand, you know, and got toxic politically. And then part of it is that the people do not have a, um, a strong foundation of, of overlapping knowledge. And so what happens is that they're not going to understand what you're talking about when you go to that space that is, that side of the argument. Um, and I, I kind of don't even participate in that. I mean, if we want to talk about how to change climate, I don't know how it would work. It's too much, too, too complex to explain and prove on a global scale, but I can prove it on a very small scale. I could chop all the trees down off a mountain mm -hmm. and, um, then the runoff from that mountain would be crazy. And within a year, the, the, the soils would start drying out and, There'd be less rain. There would be huge problems. And I changed that climate and I can see it and I can see the damage I did. So in terms of what we did in California, that's basically exactly what we did. And so yeah. I can prove that and I can stand on that because everyone, no one can refute that. And we can fix that. Yeah, exactly. Right? We can fit, we, and we, and we don't have to go through this whole 
rigmarole about political ideology. We don't have to look at it from a, a spiritual standpoint. We don't yep. have to tell the rancher he's evil because he drives an F-350. All we have to do is say, what's wrong with the landscape? Let's fix it. And there are actionable, mechanical things that can be done from a standpoint of replanting, from support species, from earthworks, and you can take the dyed-in-the-wool, absolutely, America, wave the flag, conservative Republican, and you can show them that solution, and if you can get them to shut up long enough to look at it, they go, well, that makes sense. And for the people on like the, the uber-environmental left, until you're doing that, You're not accomplishing anything. Talking to other people that already agree with you about how wrong everybody else in is doesn't do anything. But getting the people on board who have the means to help you fix the problem, that's critical. And the way you get there, it's shocking, but it's the edge analysis. Where do those two groups overlap? Where is their interaction? Where do they willingly choose to interact with each other? And where's all the, all the fertility, Matt? Where is all the fertility? Where is all the production in every single system? It's where the people are. Well, it's, when, it's on the edge. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, of course. But, but I think that our needs are the edge right now. Yeah. That all, like, we were looking around constantly, and I feel like people are looking for the state government to provide answers, yeah. the federal government. But it's that's us. the bleeding edge instead of the interactive edge. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the edge that cuts us up. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I t I definitely tend to see it as us turning to each other and being like, well, these are my needs, and then we discover, hey, wait a second, if we just stop talking politics, or uh, yeah, because the thing is, it's like. Our personal beliefs are not our politics is the problem that people have. And they believe that they, that, that politics is a way to be basically religious. Mm. Um, and it's a way that we proselytize to each other instead of a, a tool that we use to find common, um, common ground between our needs. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. So, Um, can we talk a little bit about what, before we wrap up here, what you're doing in your own backyard, uh, not as a teacher, but as a permaculturist, do you have kind of like a homestead set up or what have you? Yeah. By the way, uh, is the music distracting? It's the school bells. It's a little bit, but don't worry about it. It is what it is. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just be close to the, so maybe I'll drown it out. So on my property, I, basically I've been trying to do permaculture for a long time without realizing that's what I was looking for. And so when I found permaculture, I was already saving over a hundred different varieties. I was already doing all the organic techniques with no sprays. I was already investigating compost tea. Um, so I was, I was, I was ready for it and I, was able to instantly implement all the stuff that, uh, that I could financially. I've got a giant compost tea brewer. I've got a worm juice, uh, compost system. And <laughs> I basically have, uh, right now only have 40 birds, but I've had like 150. I've had 200. I've done meat birds. I have tons of different kinds of, uh, laying birds. I think I probably have seven varieties. Um, and I'm breeding them now. Um, I've got 
goat milk. I've got goat fleece. I got angoras. I've got. Um, I just did a pig. We did a, a, an American guinea hog, and I rented the lard. We saved the meat from that. Um, I basically have two acres that I dug by hand, uh, putting in swales on hills over the past seven months by myself, except for one swale I did with a class. And I've put in over 60 trees. Um, 20 of them are uh, fruit and valuable. The other are legume trees, autumn olive and um, Siberian pea shrubs and hackberry. I have a lot of perennial berries, cane berries, and strawberries, uh, things like rhubarb, asparagus. Um, but I really am into things that I've never tasted before. Like I said, I was a foodie. So I'm the kind of person that will spend two hours in the kitchen if I eat it and I can't open my eyes because it's so darn good to eat. Um, because I don't know. I mean, the thing is, it's like my wife has suffered so much that I want to give her every pleasure I can. And part of, and, and also I want my kids to like love food so deeply that they understand its value. And when they eat food, that's not of that quality, they go, what the heck is this? And the only way to do that is by me growing it. And so I've got like a green, I've got one greenhouse set up right now that's filled to the gills. I've got over 500 seedlings going. I think I have over 25 different types of tomatoes growing in there. Um, and then I've got to set up the, the next one this weekend and fill that. I, I'm trying to do things that, um, in our area grow really well with the least amount of work in it, but I basically want an annual stun garden. Um, <laughs> Joe, Joe Simcox from uh, the Botanical Explorer series and, uh, uh, the rare, the rare vegetable seed consortium. He might be hooking me up with some Peruvian corn that basically doesn't need irrigation very much. And if I can scale up corn for the Central Valley that really needs 20 to 10% of the water that our current corn does that, because we just took Iowa corn. That's the other crime about all this is that I started saving seed because nothing would grow in our area. It would all bolt. I would get it from Baker Creek, which is Missouri and wetter than wet or Oregon, which is wet and plant it in our desert ground. And it would just go straight to bolting. It took me four years to get my white carrots to size up properly instead of just bolting because I had to adapt them to my climate. So seed saving for me came out of a necessity. So I've got over 250 varieties this year of annuals. I've got over 40 different varieties of perennials. Um, well, 40 different types of perennials, not varieties. Cause each one, cause I mean, I have like nine different types of, of strawberries. Um, and, and I truly believe that the only way that you're going to ever touch your nutritional palate like you're supposed to is by eating a rainbow, uh, and eating a diverse amount of every single type of food and not, um, not just the red big boy tomatoes that Monsanto owns. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool, man. So, um, of all the stuff you've talked about as far as your books and the work you're doing, how much of it's actually available now? How much of it's coming? And of what's available? How do people get it? Okay. So I, I'm setting up right now the permaculturestudent.com. 
and uh, all my awesome Kickstarters who uh, supported us and got us to 300% of our goal, uh, just over $27,000. Um, they're all waited with baiting, bated breath for our illustrator to finish, which is going to take uh, 11 weeks. <laughs> um, but we're talking about adding 16 full-page, full-color painted permaculture diagrams like a backyard food forest that's scientifically accurate, like a farm that's zoned properly. So it's it's going to be worth it. And I, I, I mean, I could have just, people loved the book I showed them, and I could have just given them that. But I think it's really worthwhile to make something that's so perfect that when we translate it into all these different languages, it's going to become the classic, you know, first manual for everyone's kids. And I did that. I want that not as a, a a me thing. I I want it as an us thing, and that's why I tied in Rosemary Morrow, who's been you know teaching permaculture for thirty years. I tied in Jeff Lawton and his son Daniel Lawton, who runs Permaculture Tools. I talked to Neil, Neil Speckman, read it over. A whole team of permies through Paul Wheaton read it over. I had. Um, Educators from all walks of life helping me out with this. I had homeschool parents editing it. I had Mike Ayler, the alternative builder, um, looking it over and, and giving me feedback. I'm probably forgetting people. There's so many uh, people that helped. Uh, Elaine Ingham, Dr. Elaine Ingham, uh, even helped me with it. So it represents a body of work and knowledge that is way beyond anything I could ever accomplish in my own lifetime. And I wanted it that way because this is going to be, you know, the arrowhead that drives us through to the future, I hope. And I want it to be something that every kid all over the world can just take and go and make amazing things happen for their family and communities in an ethical, earth-sustaining and life-sustaining way. Well, man, that's awesome, and I'm glad to hear it, and I'm really appreciative of the work that you're doing and uh, for your service as a teacher at a totally different level than I think we have, we've come to expect, and I think we'd both agree. I'd like to see the day when, when you are typical of teachers rather than the exception. Oh, yeah, that would be amazing. Well, again, then there would be people better than me. Then there would be people better than me, and that's the whole point is that it's the future, and that's what you talk about when you're talking about you know, one hand you've got your uh, your grafting knife, and in your other hand you have you know your cuttings, and it's like that is that's it. We are building a future that is greater than the world we live in now, and that's to me what it is to be an American. Well, I my opinion of you, if it could have gone up today, just did. Um, I think <laughs> there are way too many people worried about being the best at what they do. Uh, I think that truly exceptional people hope to someday be considered lackadaisical at what they do uh, because that means they're actually getting shit done. When other people can pick up what you're doing and do it better, then you're actually teaching. If the student doesn't surpass the teacher, what has the teacher really done? Yeah, absolutely. Or, or do you have an actual website or... So it's the website that, that I'm on currently. I'm building the other website right now, but okay. the website I'm on currently is facebook.com backslash the permaculture student. Okay. I've got a bunch of links for you here, but I don't have like. I know. I'm, you got, I'm, we got to fix that, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, on Twitter, place your domain there until you're done. 
<laughs> Seriously, just read, just do a redirect and point it there. I can help you with that later if you want me to. But anyway, it's uh, facebook.com slash the permaculture student. I'll have that in the show notes along with your Twitter feed. And uh, you've got a blog too as well, teacherpowers.blogspot.com. Uh, yeah, that's where I really get into and start ripping apart education. Excellent. So we'll make sure we have links to that. And again, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Jack. It was a pleasure. All right, folks. So with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Matt Powers helping you figure out how to live that better life. Tom's get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way